Hello, my name is Artemis Fatiado, and this is Our Histories, the podcast of the LSE's International History Department. In this episode, I am joined by Dr. Dina Guseinova to discuss her recent book on European elites and ideas of empire, covering the years from 1917 to 1957. We begin with Dina introducing the people she focuses in the book, a group of elite intellectuals who were brought up in the German, Habsburg and Russian empires, but who also had to learn how to live in post-imperial Europe. I ended up with this project which tries to reconstruct the formative experiences of a generation of people who emerged with the expectations that empires will provide them with uh, established career paths, and diplomacy and so on, um, but then ended up having this rupture with the First World War, which which kind of uh, broke these plans, and then they reinvent themselves as writers, publicists, and intellectuals. And um, I tried to organize each chapter around um, one of these figures, which stand for, in fact, for a kind of group of such people. So, um, uh, for example, um, the, the opening chapter uh, starts with um, the case of the Habsburg elites, which uh, come to terms with the kind of the waning of Habsburg power, so the execution of Emperor Maximilian in, in Mexico, and um, and then reconstructs you know how different intellectuals make sense of this. Um, and I observe this process through the eyes of a tourist, Count Kessler, who uh, is the author of a famous diary that um, that mentions eventually in his lifetime mentions forty thousand names um, of uh, of various contemporaries of different um, kinds of significance, um, so. In that sense, the center, the central figure of interest in that chapter, for instance, is actually not the diarist, but is uh, is this Habsburg emperor as an object of fascination. That you know, his death as an object of fascination, his execution by uh, in Mexico as um, an object of general European interest. But the the main source is this this diary, and in fact, the diarist Kessler remains a kind of guide throughout the the book. Um, and then um, this brings me then to. Um, Kessler's own experiences of the First World War and the shattering of these empires that are indicative for this whole generation. Um, and uh, Kessler is an interesting figure because he is an aristocrat, but he doesn't come from an old family. He comes from a family that was ennobled um, uh, under the, the modern German empire. So he is a kind of go-between between the bourgeoisie and the, the aristocracy. Um, and then this brings me to um, a figure who is well known in studies of the idea of Europe, Count Kudenhof Kalergi, but in my case, I am trying to link his idea of Europe to the kind of con well conversion of ideas of uh, reforming Austria-Hungary under conditions of imperial decline. Um, and then this brings me to another chapter which um, looks at the German Republic and the ideology of the German Republic and how that's linked to these um, princess, including um, uh, uh, Count Feldheim, who is um, a sort of orientalist and um, a kind of dandy um, who lives in, um, in a provincial town, really, but is extremely well connected in various communities. And I'm looking at these, these aristocratic figures as go-betweens between different ideologies. So some of those who endorse the German Republic and others who are nostalgic for, uh, for the empire and, and are seeking some other orientation. Um, then I look at uh, the situation in Russia and the Russian Empire, and particularly at the so-called Baltic barons, represented by um, by an international lawyer, Mikhail von Taube, um, who was a Russian senator and kind of a very influential international lawyer in the Russian Empire, and obviously loses all his positions and then becomes a sort of uh, international teacher of international law in, interwar in the interwar period. Um, and um, this Tauber stands for a broader group of so-called Baltic barons who dominate the Russian Empire in um, intellectual and political contexts. 
And then um, I'm looking at uh, the way in which uh, these aristocratic intellectuals link up with uh, various forms of, well, follow-up ideologies. So one is the emergence of fascism and national socialism as a kind of, um, well, the aspect of it that I'm interested in is a kind of nostalgic ideology that is trying to reconstruct a new German empire. And I'm looking at the figures like um, um, Karl Anton Rohan, who is a, um, an, an intellectual based in um, in Vienna, also this kind of aristocratic writer who flirts with fascism, um, and also some other figures as kind of go-betweens between the old establishment and the new fascist ideologies. Um, and then my kind of epilogue chapter is um, on the transnational connections of figures like Kessler, the original diarist, and some of the other characters, and how they are connected to um, imperial elites from uh, Britain, um, who are nostalgic for empire. And in the case of Britain, these are not aristocratic intellectuals, but more establishment intellectuals like the Bloomsbury Circle, um, which are kind of the equivalent of this German gentry in a way, intellectual gentry. Um, and they, they find some kind of re recognition in the approach of these melancholic German aristocrats to, to their own experiences of empire and thinking back to empire as a multi-ethnic structure, as a structure which facilitated certain forms of incoherent kind of hierarchies that they they missed, even though they were critical of the abuses of power that occurred in them. So this kind of ambivalence um, is what I'm what I'm interested in, uh, in, in the end. Um, so in, in that sense, the story that normally would be told of these aristocratic intellectuals would be one that feeds neatly into um, ideas of European integration after 57. And there is a kind of influence between Kudenhofer and the project of European integration, but I'm more interested in establishing kind of separation really between their world and their mediation and the world that came after the Second World War in which they truly had no place anymore. How did you go about choosing which individuals to actually focus on? Well, once I had um, done the groundwork and I figured out the themes that I was interested in, I realized that um, what I'm interested in are the social networks of people who were kind of liberals but uh, loyal to the original imperial regimes and um, and I was interested in tracking over time how these people's thoughts kind of change as they witness revolutions and different um, transformative experiences so um, so that was kind of thematic or ideological there was a kind of selection of, of these people uh, quite a diverse network still I mean it wasn't a kind of ideologically coherent group but uh, but a kind of center left, I suppose, orientation. And then secondly, I was interested in this link between the German angle, so these German-speaking figures and their international connections. So while kind of Germany was initially at the center, it was sort of quickly became just a kind of focal point of a more transnational network that I was trying to track. You call them aristocratic intellectuals. In what way were they intellectuals? How, how did you define that or how did you decide that they were intellectuals? Yeah, so there are, of course, different ways of, of defining intellectuals. In my case, these were people who made um, public interventions and analyses of a kind of situation, uh, whether it's a cultural style or political, the political future of their country, who made this kind of intervention uh, the substance of their, of their work. So they were, in that sense, um, well, public intellectuals even. So they, they, they were people engaged in writing and in forms of social activism, which in one way or another involved analyzing their present, the past, the future uh, of their, um, well, of their countries, in some cases, the future of, of Europe, global issues, 
yeah, that that sort of yeah, I guess that that was my my definition. Um, what I was interested in these aristocratic characters is, was um, I mean I mentioned that I was interested in these kind of center left ideologies and then secondly these kind of German thinkers with international ties, but. You are right that there was, there was a third element in this kind of ideal type of intellectual that I eventually crystallized, that cr crystallized itself, that I was eventually looking for. And that was this kind of strange, yeah, aristocratic intellectual, this strange social type that emerged also in this period, which uh, contemporaries observed, uh, with the, for example, the um, uh, Austrian journalist Karl Kraus observed the emergence of these of these people. He was talking about these aristocratic writers who are springing up like mushrooms after the rain, after the end of the, uh, the First World War. Um, and I mean, it was a strange social phenomenon. I mean, these, these were aristocrats who were, they grew up thinking that they would be the establishment of their empires. Uh, so this includes the central figure for my um, method, really, Kessler, but also a number of other such figures. They all expected to have basically high-flying careers in either the foreign offices of their countries or, well, some, some form of very visible role um, in this or kind of politics of culture. And, um, of course, uh, the, the collapse of these systems also meant an end to that particular career track that they had envisaged. And what I was interested in is how this intellectualism itself, so writing and thinking through that process of disorientation became a kind of alternative pathway for these people. Um, simply, that, you know, they kind of reinvented themselves. And they, of course, had a lot of social capital that gave them an advantage and visibility with, with their names. So uh, it was easier for them in some respects to reach um, immediately a wide audience, to start new journals, to seek funding and support. So, for example, this guy Kaiserling, he um, enjoys the, the financial um, support of... Uh, Grand Duke, that uh, a Grand Duke of the Hessen Darmstadt, who is actually loses power as in his capacity as a prince of a small German principality, but then still has capital that he can use freely. And one of the things he funds is this kind of school of wisdom that Kaiserling starts. So um, I was interested in how these people are also kind of reinventing themselves through intellectual labor, in a sense. You said that they tried to reinvent themselves, or they had to reinvent themselves. But again, their formative years, everything, that they, their way of thinking had been shaped during empire. How did that shape the way that they tried to, to shape New Europe? Well, the main idea, I think, that um, this imperial formation gave them is that their orientation was very global and connected. They could not really think of themselves as nationalists. Even though they were they were patriots, but the, the kind of patriotism that they felt for um, a certain idea of of the German Empire or a certain idea of a liberal Russian Empire, for instance, it wasn't national. It was it factored in um, the diversity, the kind of internal hierarchies of these empires that that existed, and it also had an important colonial dimension. So, for example, Kudenhof Kalergi, the, uh, the Austrian pan-Europeanist. So his his natural conception of of Europe is is as a, a kind of uh, international powerhouse which rests on the extraction of of sources of value from colonies. So that was a kind of natural expectation that um, that they had in terms of the economic backbone backbone of um, of this. And another element of this is that they thought of themselves as kind of liberal reformers of these empires. So they were also critics of their fathers' generations in some cases. They they saw certain problems with the abuse of power by monarchs, for example. So uh, the German example, they were critical of William II. They very much endorsed some of the criticisms made at Versailles even of the German uh, governing elites uh, that sort of um, 
you know, led to various kinds of misconduct during the First World War. So they were, uh, in that sense, quite critical of the old establishment, um, or the these Baltic barons that I'm writing about. They were quite critical of the the Russian imperial elite and the court. They thought of themselves as reformers who will use international law, which very much developed in this kind of inter-imperial space to reform the the way the Russian Empire is positioned in in the world and so on. Did you find, though, that they also felt some kind of entitlement to shape Europe? Because, yes, they, they, they may have been critical and so on, but they were still involved and they had to reinvent themselves to remain involved. Of course. I mean, they were the quintessential, um, the kinds of dead white men that people want to kind of write out of history now. I mean, they were these people. I mean, they were alive. They felt quite dead sort of in the moment of the revolutions that happened. But uh, but they were definitely those those white men we were looking for. Um, um, they they were people who were thinking, um, yes, I mean, how can we reinvent in a sense our entitlement? Um, how can we reassert the fact that we still remain entitled to rule this, whatever this will be, even if it's no longer this world governed by these uh, dynastic families? In fact, they saw it as a kind of opportunity eventually that, in the absence of these dynastic families, they will have even more power in a way to to run affairs and finally get to say the things they always wanted to say. In what way did they remain involved in public life? Was it um, through being involved in high politics or was it mainly non-political ways? No, certainly both political and non-political. In fact, they were the ones who shaped um, what I would call soft power using this kind of Cold War concept by Joseph Nye. Um, they were the masters of soft power, but often deployed specifically by by hard power kind of elements. So, for example, they were used in um, propaganda. So, for, uh, for example, Count Kessler was used in, um, in producing kind of pro-German propaganda in Switzerland, um, in you know in settings where various things were negotiated such as preparing for the peace treaty and and, and so on and in this capacity he was sounding out um, various German pacifists and um, dissidents and playing this kind of go-between role that he was kind of both accepted in some communist circles so for example he supported a communist publishing house Malik but at the same time he also had access to the kind of most um, reactionary in some ways um, representatives of uh, of the regime and, and diplomats who ended up um, fulfilling more leading roles like Count Brockdorf Rantzau, uh, leading diplomat who went to Soviet Russia. And, and also they had high um, visibility in international meetings such as, I don't know, the Rapallo Agreement, um, subsequent um, kind of diplomatic negotiations of the status of Germany and international relations, for instance, um, there. And in the case of others, they use soft power more in kind of intellectual circles. So, for example, um, the Baltic Baron, who was a lawyer that I mentioned, he was involved in uh, teaching international law in the interwar period, in uh, leading uh, organizations, some of them funded by the Carnegie Foundation, um, teaching at The Hague um, and various international schools in Sweden, in Germany. And eventually he settled as a kind of refugee uh, from what became the Soviet Union in, in Paris and um, was active there. So that was another element. Um, they were also kind of important as go-betweens in new ideological movements kind of search for their own identity. So for example, the, the fascists organized a congress um, in 1932, uh, which was sponsored by the Volta Foundation, uh, which was designed to shape a kind of new fascist idea of Europe, Europe's future. And interestingly, that Congress drew not only uh, new fascist and national socialist um, intellectuals um, who, who kind of came to this. So, for example, Alfred Rosenberg was um, 
one of the attendees, but they also invited these representatives of the old uh, imperial elite. So for example, the Habsburg um, uh, intellectual Carl Anton Rohan, who was um, the founder of an international organization that was kind of the forerunner of UNESCO, um, the Society for Intellectual Cooperation. His personal agenda was, of course, to kind of maintain his visibility in future-oriented um, ideologies. He was flirting with these fascists. He wasn't necessarily himself a kind of the same kind of fascist that, I don't know, Danunzio was or something. But at the same time, of course, he also gave them a certain kind of legitimacy simply by being there, by, by providing that link between the old world and um, and the new. So, uh, yeah, so, so the, there were those elements. And I think also... Um, Publishing was a key area in which they emphasized their visibility. So they started new journals, for example, the journal uh, The German Nation, which had this uh, slightly misleading title in a way of kind of nationalist republican journal in Weimar Germany. But actually it was a kind of international affairs journal, which um, discussed a lot of rather radical ideas like corporate um, organization and, you know, the economic council and various forms of representation of the economy as well as politics in the new order um, and uh, other magazines that that many of them started, which um, were then pushed to various specific locations, such as the libraries of foreign offices in the world. So, for example, Chatham House, the new think tank that emerged into Britain, was a subscriber to a number of these magazines where these people published. So, um, yeah, they had a, a number of different channels that they used. Did the... Um, the racial structures or thinking of empire, um, did they carry that with them? Yes, in some, of their, in some cases that was visible. Um, they had an interesting idea of race. They certainly believed in racial inequality. So specifically what was important to them is a kind of genealogical superiority of these uh, aristocratic kind of credentials that their families had. So in that sense, they believed in this kind of blue blood, Gotha book of nobility sort of model at one level, but not all of them. Some of them also thought that it was important to keep the nobility kind of, to revitalize it occasionally by mixing, um, not only mixing with the, you know, bourgeois kind of elements, but um, in fact, some of them came from rather recently ennobled families and not, you know, families that would have been listed in the Gotha book. Uh, but in other cases, they even thought of the need to kind of infuse the rather uh, sort of, um, incestuous, I guess, character of the European nobility with non-European races. So, for example, Kudenhof Kalergi, who was himself had a, a Japanese mother, um, was also an advocate of kind of racial mixture for the new European nobility. So one element of their racial thinking was very much a preoccupation of the nobility in the old sense of this kind of blue blood uh, European um, kind of formation which which had emerged in, in kind of early modern Europe. But at another level, they were also thinking about the kind of the racial order, the racial hierarchies of the different groups within empires. And in that respect, they were um, kind of more progressive. So they certainly came out, I mean, that was kind of part of the selection, I suppose, that I made because I was interested in those more progressive sort of um, representatives of these imperial elites. And they were, for example, critics of anti-Semitism, some of them. Um, others were uh, particularly interested in forms of kind of ethnic sovereignty within empires. So in that sense, for example, a kind of devolution, devolutionism. So for example, um, somebody like Count Kessler was interested in supporting the idea of a Polish independent Poland in the aftermath of the First World War, but along the lines of kind of older forms of satellite kingdoms um, under the influence of more powerful um, empires. 
Um, and in that respect, he contradicted the rather widespread um, anti-Polish kind of sentiments that had racial undertones in, in Germany. Um, Kudenhof Kalergi was the son of a diplomat who published a famous tract against anti-Semitism in Austria-Hungary and, um, and was a kind of spokesman against anti-Semitism in Europe. Um, and, uh, the, well, there were a number of other such examples. Um, others were less... Uh, like focused really on the sort of ethnic themes. But um, also some of them were very used to being a kind of ethnic minority within um, empires. So this was not true of the German examples, but um, the, in the case of the Russian, the Baltic barons, I mean, they were basically descendants of, descendants of crusaders who were sort of German-speaking uh, families. Many of them were originally Lutheran as well, or eventually became Lutheran, um, who were kind of an alien element within the Russian empire, which was dominated by officially at least, by uh, orthodox Slavs. I mean, of course, that's not true in the sense that it was a very multi-ethnic empire, but uh, it was its, its official discourse was, um, uh, was one of a kind of Russian-dominated orthodoxy. Um, and within this context, these Baltic barons played a really important role because they occupied very visible leading positions in, uh, in the Senate and the uh, um, particularly in the kind of uh, diplomatic and foreign orientation, as it were, of the Russian Empire, and kept also important connections across different um, other European um, empires. So they were used to thinking of themselves simultaneously as superior to other Europeans by genealogy, also a kind of ethnic minority at the same time in some regions, and, uh, and kind of having a certain kind of pride in being that sort of minority, and therefore also having a certain tolerance for uh, other minorities' demands for certain degrees of sovereignty or autonomy, as long as the overall structures of uh, hierarchies of empire with their rather loose and often amorphous organization were, were maintained and kind of could could guarantee a hegemony of what they believed were the, the right ideas, as it were. Would you say that by and large they saw empire in, in a nostalgic way? Yes, there was certainly an element of nostalgia in all of their, their writings. And I was interested in what exactly they were nostalgic for. And that's why I kind of left it almost vague that I'm speaking of their ideas of empire without necessarily fixing that this is exactly what they meant when they said empire. You know, on some, some days by empire, they meant their own youthful experiences of traveling, borderless traveling, for example, or kind of easy, easy connections across um, Borders. Or they also thought of certain kinds of lifestyle uh, balls and certain culture of, um, you know, court culture that was then absorbed by these little princes everywhere, which to some extent kind of continued actually in the interwar period, but was already, you know, declining. And, and generally the kind of the, the decorum, I suppose, of, of empire, I think that's probably what then the nostalgia was, um, was connected to. In both in the book, but also in your other work, you talk about the concept of uh, derecognition. So when it comes to people who shaped society in, in, in some ways, but their views no, are no longer held by contemporary society, how do we deal with them? So can you elaborate a bit more on derecognition? What do you mean um, with that? Yeah, so in kind of introducing this concept or bringing it more to a sort of historical kind of context, I thought of doing two things. First is simply to notice that there is this phenomenon and that as historians, we tend to look more at kind of social conflict through the eyes of either the kind of the main villains, if you like, or the main victims. Um, and we don't look at these sort of in-between figures so much partly because it's sometimes difficult to kind of 
frame it as a kind of the relevance of these transi transitional figures. But I was, I thought that there is value in simply notif noticing that, um, that there are these significant figures who belong neither to the sort of the old regime nor to the new regime, but they're sort of transitional. And, and then I thought, okay, so one was simply sociological in a way, just to sort of notice this process and kind of find a vocabulary to describe it. How, you know, what happens when societies move on to a new paradigm and what do they do to these old, these white men, if you like, um, you know, what do they do to discredit them or to seek to, um, to dishonor them. So for example, in, in Republican Germany, Republican Austria, they weren't allowed to have their, um, their uh, suffixes, fawn, or to, to display their titles in official documentation. So that wasn't one attempt to, to kind of discredit them. But there were also ideas of ex expropriation. And of course, the most radical is in the Russian Revolution, where um, they were called the so-called former people, and some of them were executed and so on. Um, and of course, the symbols were removed from public spaces. So there's all that going on. But um, the, quest the second question I have, um, and that I'm interested in is, is actually what's the ideological impact of these discredited people? And they're, they're bound to be, you know, generations of such, um, um, of such people and also like examples from political regimes that are toppled in different places. And often they fade from view, but that doesn't mean that they actually aren't influential in the background. And I think, uh, so the case of my transitional people, uh, suggest a particularly unlikely influence of these Germans who, you know, are influential internationally at a time when Germany as a nation is completely discredited. Um, so there's a kind of combination going on of discrediting individuals, but also discrediting whole nations, um, that they, they lose kind of public credit in the international community. And in this context, people from specific backgrounds, including, in this case, paradoxically, these kind of former people that, you know, are officially no longer in power, they, they become really important because they provide the dialogue between the old society and the new society. They're kind of a, um, sometimes it's a generational question, but it's also a question of formative experiences. So they, they connect the people who, who still think within the paradigms of the old regimes with the people who are now have accepted that the Soviet Union exists, various new, uh, I don't know, Republic in Germany exists, and um, there's a kind of civil war-like situation in France. And they can operate within these frameworks between these two very different worlds, which somehow in these transitional periods coincide. So what future work would you like to see done at this um, intersection between social and intellectual history? I think above all, I would like to see more interest in people who don't think in a way that we think aligns with the sort of progress of history. Uh, I think it's very tempting to kind of fo follow the what we think is like the world spirit or in a kind of Hegelian way to sort of follow where does history go and and look at the most avant-garde individuals um, of that. But I would like to see more work that actually pays attention to these people who are left behind a little bit and just understand, you know, what holds them back, what means that they are reorienting themselves. So in terms of ideologies, in other words, I think it's really important to look at mixed ideologies, not just sort of the emergence of I don't know, for example, observing um, um, the history of socialism, for instance. So what happens to the people who are gradually uh, becoming disenchanted with a communist party um, in the wake of various crimes committed in the, in the Soviet Union? What happens to those socialists who are kind of neither Western Marxists nor Soviet Marxists, for example, these kind of intermediate figures? They don't quite find any connection in a visible way. but. I mean, what happens to them professionally? Do they become, I don't know, historians, for example, or what kind of orientation do they seek? What's their influence? And there's bound to be social influence that some people like this um, will have. And, and similarly, I mean, 
how, how do people who are passionate uh, advocates of a certain belief um, after this belief has completely been you know has been completely discredited by one mechanism or another so for example i don't know national so socialism after the defeat of germany in 45 um you know what happens to these these former nazis who don't actually get re-educated necessarily and and actually still think of certain elements of that old, old nazi worldview as kind of worth defending in some informal way what, how do they try to defend it what do they what kind of informal knowledge communities do they form um, that this kind of informal power and also this uncertainty so kind of having more capacity to recognize that the historical actors that we see they are not fixed in their worldviews but their worldviews evolve in social contexts and just simply having an interest a curiosity for adaptation for internal contradictions of one's worldview rather than trying to necessarily look for these very cr crystal clear and coherent individuals how do from your experience how do historians go about answering these questions uh, what kind of sources uh, are there at their disposal because it's not necessarily the state archive yeah that's a crucial actually question because um i think yes the, on the surface one can start with the uh, the personal archive of particular individuals and that personal archive often then links to other archives whether they are kind of uh, yeah diplomatic uh, archives or or um, other private archives essentially or for example now there's these new activist archives um also archives of social movements like the Amsterdam Institute for Social History that has a lot of holdings of this kind. Um, but one can also look at um, these kind of interesting um, compilations of in various international archives. I've worked a lot on the Hoover archives, for instance, which is a remarkable institution because it, it basically received a lot of funding um, in the aftermath of the revolutions to simply travel around Europe for the archivists to travel around Europe and buy off, you know, the archives of various refugees or various political figures who could no longer hold on to their papers, but were quite happy to pass them on to an institution. Um, and they ended up with re these remarkable holdings that any other historian will have to travel to like 20 different countries to uh, now to, to collect. So yeah, I, I guess one can find shortcuts as well, looking at those kind of um, yeah archives which connect multiple nations, multiple um, uh, connections. So I think also it's important in archival research not to not to limit oneself to the institutional tendencies of archives to organize everything by national or state borders. And uh, in that sense, I have a great preference for personal archives because they, they establish these links and they show more how societies actually are connected rather than how states would like to see them you know, connected or disconnected rather. It sounds like the kind of research that requires knowing a number of languages. What I find really fascinating, I can never get away from this period prior to the end of the Second World War when um, I find a lot of archival holdings are very multilingual internally. So many of these figures, their own personal archives contain, you know, writings in at least three languages and sometimes more. Um, and they were, you know, not necessarily equally fluent in all of them, but they, were, they could certainly read and they could exchange in these languages. And, um, and I find my impression is that there's a kind of gradual um, uniformity that emerges in terms of linguistic um, the linguistic appearance of archives after the 50s but I may not be right I don't know maybe that might be my bias that obviously this is the period that I know best um, and I don't know but what what attracts me about the spirit is this multilingual character of the um, of the archival base this was dr. Dina Gusenova and this was our histories thank you for listening <laughs>